0: good evening everyone and welcome to the conclusion of the 2021 2022 Faith and life Lecture series. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, the senior pastor here at St. Philip the Deacon, which is privileged to present these community services and I'm glad you are here. I want to offer a special welcome also to those of you joining us virtually and especially anyone joining us tonight for the first faith and life event. Um, this is as I mentioned, the conclusion of the 19th season of uh, these talks, so that means that our speaker tonight is our 95th speaker, which is hard for me to believe. Uh, And over that 19 years, we have hosted authors and doctors and uh, nonprofit and business leaders, journalists, um, bloggers. And um, the point of the series is really to bring in people, most of whom are not theologians or pastors, to speak about how faith is connected to their particular life. Uh, just a tr- word about the flow tonight. Uh, our speaker will speak for about 40 minutes or so. Uh, after that, there'll be a chance for open mic Q&A. So we have a, a microphone there and there. Those of you who are online, um, Amanda, where do they send it to? Do you remember? Faith in Life website, it's like a question thing or they can go on Facebook. OK. The Faith and Life website, uh, there's a form to send a question. I should have checked this before I got up here. Or on our Facebook page. Um, can they also send it to info at spdlc.org? Okay, or info at spdlc.org. Anyway, if you send those questions in, we will try to ask those questions during the q and a as well. Uh, tonight's speaker, as you will read in the program, if you're here, has been a uh, for-profit and nonprofit uh, business leader. He's been someone who's done ministry work. And since December of 2020, He has been the executive director of a very important nonprofit in our backyard, Interfaith Outreach. Interfaith Outreach has actually been a major partner for this congregation, for St. Philip the Deacon, for at least 20 years. It may even be longer than that. Some of you in the audience will likely know better than I, but uh, we're delighted he's here. I will say on a personal level. Again, he's rel- relatively new to interfaith. Uh, I had the privilege of meeting him personally over the last year or so. And since that first meeting, we made a commitment to have uh, breakfast once a month, which we've been doing. And it has been a privilege to do that. Um, I always include one unexpected thing about our speakers as, the, as part of the introduction. And in the case of tonight's speaker, I will simply say that when he was 19 or 20 years old, he studied ballet. Will you join me in welcoming Kevin Ward? <laughs> thank, thank you,
1: Good evening. Would you like to see some of those <laughs> ballet moves? <laughs> Probably a little tougher now. Um, it is a delight to be before you this evening. Um, to Pastor Westamore, I want to thank you for Warm welcome into the community um, and the relationship that we've built over the last year and a half has been amazing. Um, he's way more funny than I ever realized. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a pleasure. Um, also, to those of you who journeyed out this evening, uh, thank you for coming. Um, it is an honor to be before you. I stand here uh, on the on the backs of many that have come along these series. And I'm sure there have been some amazing speakers, teachers, intellectuals. And um, I think it's a great series. It's a great thing uh, to continue that lifelong continuum of learning uh, and evolving and growing. And I'm excited to be considered part of that elite group. Today I'm going to talk about three things. Safety, success, insignificance. Safety, success, insignificance. She's slipping, she's slipping, the delivery doctor yelled. Mom didn't even know she was pregnant all those months. She wasn't properly nourished. During the delivery, every time she screamed in pain, my little body would retract back into hers. The doctor told her to try to stop screaming or I would not come out. Maybe I could sense the hard days ahead and wanted to stay where it was safe. Mom got weaker and weaker. It took some hours to come into this world and I wasn't even the size I am today. But I finally arrived, kicking and screaming. My mom was very young when she had me. And coming into this world was very traumatic. And I'm going to roam a little bit if that's okay. Um, Was very traumatic. And what I remember or what I... What I think I've spent my life trying to find is safety. Even in baseball, when you're running around the diamonds and the runner comes in, what does the umpire say? Safe, Safe, right? Safe. Sometimes when you are... in kind of where we are in our world today with uncertainty and you think about the markets up and down when you look at rumors of war when you consider COVID is still rampant when you think about inflation and how things are escalating basic cost safety is something that I think we all desire and want. Just want to be safe. And so I've spent most of my life not even realizing that that was my definition of success. And that is to be safe. I even remember when I was a little boy, the reason why that safety is so important is because We got evicted, and as part of that eviction, they threw our stuff, and we didn't have much, but they threw it out on the street. And I remember being on my mom's hip as she's fighting the looters who's coming to take the little bit that we had. And when you have inconsistency in housing, what becomes important to you? Safety. And when you think about it, a house, your place of resident, is one of the most safest places we can be because it's our home, right? And if you don't have that, you search for it. And what I found is even along this journey that I've been on, when there is consistency in housing, There's consistency in revenue and income. Relationships are good. Things seem to be trending in the right direction. And bam, just like that, something happens, and we find ourselves in a place searching for that safety. As I've been along this life, There have been times that I've had tremendous safety and didn't know it, and there's been times that I had no safety and didn't know it. So I built a life of trying to be simply safe. Growing up in Southern Virginia, I was um, very fortunate that when I was little, probably about six or seven, there was a, um, we lived in this inner city community, apartments, subsidized housing. And I had a friend who said, hey, do you wanna go to church? I had no idea what church was, I didn't come from a family of faith, but he invited me to church. And he said, be ready, Sunday morning at eight o'clock. Go to the bus stop, I'll meet you at the bus stop where the bus comes during the week to pick us up to go to school. And there was a church bus that came and picked us up from a church, from a church that was probably about six or seven miles. And you had this, mostly your American church, who was sent a bus into our community which was mostly BIPOC, kids of, kids of color, Hispanic, And they would pick us up and they would take us to this church. And I remember driving up to the church on this bus. And when we got to the top, there were two rows of people clapping, cheering, could not wait to see us. They greeted us. We came off the bus. They gave us high fives, rushed us into the church. And you could smell the baking. You could smell the breakfast that they had prepared. And they fed us. And then we went and we learned about this amazing figure in the Bible. They told stories. And oh, my gosh, I felt safe there. So safe that I would go every single Sunday. There wasn't a Sunday I would miss. And I had gotten permission from my mom to go, and I would get up and get myself dressed because I had to go to that place where I felt safe. What was it about that place? What was it about that experience that gave me a sense of safety? What was it about it? It was the people that extended and showed love and concern for us who invested in us. I felt safe there. Time went on and I fell away from that church. And in my early teens, I started to get involved in sports, and I come from a very athletic um, family. And so sports became kind of another place that was safe for me, and I enjoyed it. But when I was about 17, about to turn 18 years old, my life changed forever. It was an August day. I was down in the inner cities, and my next-door neighbor comes over, and she tells me that her brother is on the phone and wants to talk to me. And so I get on the phone, and he's like, hey, you have anything?" I was like, yeah, what do you need? He was like, well, just meet me at this place. And the place was called Winsome Road, and it was the ABC store. It was the alcohol store where they sell alcohol. And so I grabbed my buddy, and we drove to that place. And when we got there, there was a car parked in front of me, in front of us. I pulled behind the car. It was a four-door, burgundy Bonneville. There was three white guys, one black guy. Two white guys in the front seat, white guy on the passenger side, black guy on on the driver's side. The guy got out, who I knew, whose sister had just called me and told me go meet him, or who gave me the phone, who told me go meet him. He comes up. The driver comes to the car door. And we make a drug exchange. Money, drugs for money. And when that guy went back to his car, there was police cars that came from every direction. Guns were drawn. And I was thrown on the ground and was under arrest. I had no idea. What was happening? None. And before you judge that situation, you got to understand that I was becoming a product of my environment. That was one of the ways that you stayed safe, is by figuring out how to hustle and how to provide. I was very early in that process. Didn't have much experience, as you can see. And I ended up in that situation. They pick me up, start asking me some questions, and they put me in the back of the police car. As we're driving to the police station, I can feel the plastic pleather seats sticking to the back of my leg. For the first time in my life, I understood what an awakening is all about. Everything slowed down. For the first time, I could visually see people's face. I could smell the grass that was just been cut. It was like a surreal awakening. Maybe it was I knew that what my fate was. I don't know. But in that moment, looking back, it was an awakening. And in the back of that car, I said, God, I don't know how I got here. And I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. But I beg you, I plead with you, please give me a second chance. Please God, I will be your number one evangelist. God, please get me out of this. We drive to the police station. To go up under two cops get out, go to the elevator. They punch in the 4th floor. We get in, elevator stops on the 2nd floor. Doors open. Officer Legg steps in. And she's like, Kevin? <laughs> and I was like, Officer Legg? She looks at the officers and is like, What are you doing? And they said, Well, we got a 1A's in with the tent to distribute them, you know, whatever the police jargon was. And she looked and she looked so disappointed. She's like, Kevin, Officer Legg was the D.A.R.E. officer at my high school. So she looks at me, and she was like, Kevin. And I put my head down. And she looks at the officers, and she says, are you taking them to four? They They're like, yeah. She was like, can I talk to him first? they was like, yeah, you gonna do the paperwork? She's like, yeah, I'll take care of it. There's like, took the cuffs off, he's all yours. So she takes me into, we go to the fifth floor, and she takes me to this area, and she tells me what's going on. And I tell her what's going on. And she was like, Oh my Kevin, you're so much better than this. She said, Okay. The least I can help is I can take you back down to the third floor, which is juvenile detention. There's an intake officer by the name of Fire, Fireberg. He's there. I'll take you there. If I went on the fourth floor, that was being booked as an adult, but I wasn't an adult yet. OK? So we go down to the third floor, going to Officer Fireberg's office. She introduces me. Gives him a little background. He says, okay, I'll take it from here. She leaves. We talked for two hours, Officer Fireberg and I. And he was like, I'm retiring in two months, and this is my 39th year doing this work. And what I'm about to do, I've never done in the 39 years that I've been doing this job. I'm about to release you on your own recognizant and send you home because you have so much potential and you have such a bright future that you don't belong here. And I'm looked in shock. So they, he released me. I walk out and I guess at this point my family had found out So they're coming to check on things, and I'm walking out saying, let's go. (laughs) And they're like, what? What? I don't know. At that moment, it was so clear to me that there was a God, that it was such a God thing. So finish the story I go home come back that Monday they put me on house arrest couldn't go to practice uh, couldn't go to church and at that time for the youth I was going back and forth between youth program and trying to do the right thing in the streets Youth program and try to do the right thing in the streets. In the streets, and that kind of caught up with me. So I have an uncle who lived in Northern Virginia who got wind of this, and he was a very successful businessman. And he got wind of this, and he came down and started meeting with people. I didn't know what was going on. And ended up convincing them to remove me from that environment to come live with he and my aunt in Northern Virginia. So I left that situation, but I still had to go through the process. I had to do community service, I had to do do some writing, I had to get good grades. I mean, it was a really challenging time because I was going through the transition because I lived in one environment, now I'm living in this other environment. In this new environment, safety is not a thing because everything is provided for, right? Because there's different types of safety. There's psychological safety. There's physical safety, financially safe. So, you know, a lot of, but the financial piece and was, was kind of provided for. So I go through this, and I'm doing everything I have to do. Then they sent a social worker there. They interview my aunt and uncle. They look at the house. OK. About three months later, it's time for me to go to court for my sentencing. Get up that morning. My uncle and another guy who was a successful businessman comes with us in support of me. We drive from Northern Virginia to Southern Virginia. Get there. Go to court. In court. They read all the things people have said. They see the work. And the judge looks and he says, this never happened. Bam, good luck. This never happened. Bam, good luck. So even if you go research it, it never happened because they didn't want that to impede my future. They, in a sense, wanted me to have some level of safety as I continued to grow and move past that time in my life. For some of you who are a sports fan, so that was a Friday that that happened, and we drove back up because I had a game that night and we was playing our rival. And about halfway through the game, my uncle tell, tells me, because he's in the stand, he's like, yeah, a couple of the parents leaned over and said, hey, what's going on with Kevin? He's like a, he's, cr- he's just, he's all over the place. Monk is like, it's a free man. <laughs> I was free to go and really play. I really understood at that moment. You know, there's a story in the Bible that talks about the Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, the three in the fiery furnace, and being in the furnace but coming out unscathed. Since that time, I have dedicated my life to doing this work. I've dedicated my life to service, I've dedicated my life to those who need support, I've dedicated my life to those who are struggling, and it's because of that that I can stand here with confidence today, because for a minute there I was not safe, and then I was safe. How does that work, Kevin? How does that work? Well, I went on to graduate from college and did a lot of amazing things and um, career was budding. I'd gotten married. Beautiful house. Our, our, Our careers were going well. I was safe. I was safe. Until one Saturday afternoon, we're down in the basement, my wife and I and we're going through some old trunks of stuff from college and pictures. And I find this little sandwich bag. And in this sandwich bag, there are six photos of me from first grade to sixth grade. Back then, again, we didn't have any money, so they would send, when you did school pictures, you remember how they would take one picture and like glue it to the front of the order form, right? For you to order more pictures. Who, who know what I'm talking about, right? Well, my mom kept, she would peel the, the one off and kept all six of them and end up giving it to me one day in this little baggie, because we never ordered them. But I have six of those from first through six, uh, the, the, those little small pictures. And so I'm going through and I'm showing them to my, my wife. And she's looking and she's looking. And then she looks at me and she's like, hmm. She was like, are you sure that your father is your father? I said, what? Are you sure that your father is your father? I was like, why would you ask a question like that? Yes, I'm sure. Like, what? She's like, I don't know. There's just something about these pictures. And I was like, you know what, whatever. So we go on. But oh my, I couldn't sleep. It started nagging at me. Like, why would she ask that? What? So you know what I did? I picked up the phone and called my mom. And I was like, mom. My wife said, is my dad really my dad? Why would she ask that? And I just heard a, hello? Hello? She says, hold on a minute. So she gets up, and I hear the door close to wherever she was. And she comes back to the phone. And she says, you know, Kevin... I'm not sure, whoa, what do you mean you're not sure? She's like, I don't, he may not be. I was 32 years old. I was like, what do you mean? She's like, I don't know for sure. So I said, well, who could it possibly be? And then my mom shares a story with me that I'd never known. She says, I was actually raped. And it was so traumatic for me that I don't recall certain things, or I blocked it out. I was like, oh my. And she was like, it could be the guy who did that to me. Oh my, who is this guy? And she knew. She knew the guy. And so I hang up. Do you think I'm safe? no my whole world the whole foundation my whole identity everything is coming crashing down on me so we ended up a few more conversations with my mom and then I called my dad and now he's unsafe because this is not what he, he had no idea. No idea. So, good thing we, my mom knew the guy because about three weeks later, I said, can you set up a meeting with him? And she's like, yeah, I can. So he came to my grandmother's house in Virginia. At that time, I was living in Georgia. I drove up. And when I got to the my grandmother's house, all my aunts are holding Bibles and they're, they're praying <laughs> because they're afraid that I'm not in a good place and that I want to meet this guy because I want to vindicate my mom for what he did to my mom. No, I wanted to see if it was true or not, that if he was my, my biological father. So sure enough, I get there to the house, about 20 minutes later, he shows up. I tell him, leave him on the, in the front porch. Don't let him in the house. So I go out. The minute I saw him, I knew. So I introduce myself, and he introduced himself, and he says, I'm sorry. I think I knew all along that you were my son. So I said, why did you... Do that to my mom. He says, well, I was intoxicated, you know. Okay. But in my back pocket, no one knew that I'd already ordered a DNA test. So I said, before we go any further, can you open up? And I swab both of your cheeks. He was like, uh, sure. So I swab his cheeks. I swab my cheeks. I don't go back in the house. I get in the car and leave. Now everybody's panicked. I'm actually going to overnight this to the DNA place. So I go send it off, comes back 99.9% confirmed. He's my biological father. For a week, I was on the couch crying to God. Why? Why? You know what was a result of that? My mom had struggled with addiction for most of her life. The minute she released that, that pain, the second she released that, she never touched another drug in her life. It had been worrying her. It had been robbing her of her life because of the trauma involved. She became safe because she didn't need to escape the reality any longer. She could deal with whatever was in front of her. As a result, I was able to understand at the age of 32 where my real father-son relationship was. And I was able to lean on my faith at that time And I didn't lean to my own understanding, but in all the ways I acknowledged God for what was happening. And then I felt safe again. Safe, unsafe, different traumas, different realities, and different challenges. Why? Like, why? Why? What what is this all about? So it, it all culminated for me in a couple of ways. One is I used to be ashamed to share my story because I didn't want to be judged. But then I realized that I wasn't sharing my story for me. I was sharing that story to show or share my stories to show how my faith played an important role of dealing with the reality that all along I'm talking about safety because I had a relationship and I believed I was safe all along, didn't know it. All along, because of my relationship with God, I was safe all along. And now it culminates, it culminates now into today. How does it culminate into today? I have the privilege of the work I do every single day at Interfaith Outreach and Community Partners. Because of the support of this church, because this, of the support of other churches Individuals in this church, individuals in the community who decided that they want to make sure that their neighbors are... And when someone comes to interfaith and they're scared and they don't know what to do or they have a prevailing need, a presenting need, Because of your support and because of my experience, I can stand in front of them and say, you're, as a community, that if you live in this community and you have a need, we're going to make sure that you're safe. And so it's amazing how now what drives me is making sure that no one feels unsafe. And by providing people that sense of safety, significance may be an outcome. It's not the reason, significance is the outcome. It's amazing how, when you help people get what they want, in turn, you get what you want. I've never been more secure and more safe in serving anywhere I've been than where I am right now. And it's simply because all of those experiences culminated, and I had no idea back then that one day that I'd be standing here in Plymouth, Minnesota, working with an amazing community, sharing my story, that back then I had no idea the importance of my story or even why I was going through it. And now I can sit across the table and understand and empathize with somebody who's gone through some of the things that I've gone through. And it's amazing how when you provide that sense of safety for others, you become safe. So if, 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 if you're trying to figure out for yourself, yeah, I don't feel safe, Kevin. Got money, got a house, got the basics covered, but I don't feel safe. Why don't you feel safe is the question I want to ask you. And what is it you can do to change that? Even though you believe or not, why do I still feel that sense of unsafety, of, 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 of not being safe? Why is that? One of the reasons could simply be that you really are. You think back over your life and the challenges and all the things that you've gone through, and you're still here. may not be perfect, but you're still here. Maybe it's just time to acknowledge that I am safe. And even when I don't think I'm safe, I am safe because of maybe because of what I believe and who I believe in and it's not perfect but I know without a shadow of a doubt that there's a God believe in that God and there's two commandments in Matthews the Sadducees and Pharisees were going back and forth and one asked, well, asked Jesus what's the greatest commandment of them all? To love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And then the second one is to what? Love your, your neighbors. When you love your neighbors and help those in, the neighbor, in, in our neighborhood to help those in our community, it's scripture coming to life. And we get to do that in the community as a community, and I'm honored and grateful for the opportunity to even be able to lead in this role. And I often um, believe that my, 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 my timing is divine because if you look at kind of where families are, some of the challenges they're up against given the last couple years, It's tough out here, but you'll never see me waver, because I know we've got this community behind us, and I know to whom we're truly serving. And with that, have I gone over? Right on time. Right on time. time. (laughs) Sure, okay, okay. Okay. You.
0: Okay. <clears throat> no, you're good, Kevin. You, uh, you said you'd be about 40 minutes, and you're right on it. Um, we're going to let him rest his voice for a second. A reminder there's a chance here for some questions for Kevin, uh, either here in the house at the mics or if you're online, you want to submit questions through the website. Uh, please do that, and we'll communicate them up to me, and I can ask those. Um, before then, let me make a couple of announcements. Um, the first announcement, uh, we always sort of set up the next Faith and Life event at the current one, and I am pleased to let you know that actually we have scheduled all five of next year's Faith and Life events already, and um, those of you in the house, in your I was about to call it a bulletin. I guess I'd call it a program. Uh, If you open it up on the far right interior, you will see that the uh, 2022-2023 season kicks off on Thursday, October thirteenth, with a gentleman named Arthur Brooks. Some of you may have heard of Arthur Brooks. He's the former executive director of the American Enterprise Institute, currently at Harvard. Uh, he is an economist and social scientist. Um, I don't know exactly what he's going to talk about, and by suggesting this, I hope I don't um, steal his thunder. But I would commend to all of you, uh, both here and online. Have you heard of the Free Economics podcast by any chance? So Google, Arthur Brooks, Free Economics. Um, that was an episode in the last year. Um, the title of, he was a guest on it. The title of that particular event was, "How Can We Break Our Addiction to Contempt?" And in that episode, he's addressing um, the political polarization of our country, uh, which is real and palpable. All of us are aware of it. And the only weapon in his mind, he's obviously a Christian. Everyone who comes to this series is a Christian. The only weapon to defeat it in his mind is the weapon of love. And I would I would commend that episode to you, and I would, I would encourage you next fall on the 13th to join us again as we kick off the series uh, with someone who's going to be, I think, outstanding and exceptional. And we will announce the other four speakers Uh, in the fall, as we always do, probably in August. So look for that. So that's the first thing I want to say. And then as we conclude, uh, again, the 19th season of these, I just want to say a word of thanks. Uh, We are able to do these. We've been able to do these now for almost 20 years, um, free and open to the public, thanks to the incredible generosity of individuals and organizations. They are listed here. Uh, I will name the corporations and organizations that support the series. Crossroads Financial Group has been a longtime supporter. Uh, The Valuation Group is actually a brand new supporter this year. So thank you to Paul and Robin for your support. Ulrich Real Estate, Malley Design, Augio, Productivity Inc, Mastercraft Labels, Rapid Packaging, and Cressa. Again, those are our corporate sponsors. And then there are countless individuals who support the work of this um, series. Uh, Many of them are here tonight. Some of you are online, I'm sure, watching. Would you join me in thanking them for their generosity? And you've heard me thank him before, and I'm going to do it again. Uh, Jeff Elstad has been with the series from the word go. He has played at pretty much every event, save for a few when he's been out of town or under the weather. Um, Jeff, I'm so grateful to you for your friendship and for your commitment to this series through your gift of music. Will you join me in thanking Jeff? I feel profoundly like there is something else I'm forgetting to say, but uh, does that ever happen to anyone? No? All right, I'm going to turn it back over to Kevin. Kevin, if you want to come back, I'm going to answer some questions. That would be great. Absolutely. And again, the mics are here and here. Do not be shy.
1: Any, um, any questions um, about the story about kind of what I shared? Ooh, um, sure. The question was, how long did it take me to acclimate to Northern Virginia? Um, Probably (laughs) at least a year. Uh, But by that time, it was time to go. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I want to thank you for coming tonight. It was very encouraging. Uh, My question is, uh, the young boy that you grew up with that got you to come to church, do you still keep in contact with him? No, he actually um, passed away about 10 years ago, Um, unfortunately, but yeah, it's, yeah.
0: Was there there any
1: other boys
0: that you grew up with that kind of inspired you to continue to go into church?
1: Yeah, so um, once I kind of transitioned from from that group, it's amazing because I actually became the inspiration for others, Um, ultimately having my whole family come into faith um, as part of that process. Um, But I think it was... um, There was one guy in particular who was very gifted in um, music, was a musician, and um, he had a couple, I had a couple favorite songs that he could just nail um, that really pe- played an important part in my formation of faith that actually kept me coming um, to one particular church. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Kevin, uh, an online question uh, related to Interfaith. Uh, you're, again, relatively new in your role there. The question is, can you talk a little bit about uh, what's happening there? Uh, what are new initiatives, or
1: what are you trying to change? Yeah, I think that's a um, good question. Um, sounds planted. Um, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, Interfaith is an amazing organization. It's been around 40 plus years uh, in this community and serving this community. And we've gone through some transition, but we are uh, in the the process of unveiling and executing a new strategic plan. And you know what? Sometimes that word strategic plan sounds fancy. I'm going to break it down for you. We're going to do a few things. Number one, what we do doesn't change, and that's helping our neighbors. We will still help our neighbors. How we do that is what we're exploring. And we're exploring that by putting the clients at the center of everything that we do, becoming a client-centric organization, really meeting those needs. And we have this thing, getting those we serve, what they need when they need it. You know what's behind that statement? It's to reduce suffering. At the end of the day, we want to reduce suffering by getting those in our, in our community what they need, when they need it. So this next year is all about assessing our different programs. Do we even still have the right programs? Has the needs changed? And if so, do we solve those needs or help families? Or are there other partners who are doing that? So this whole next year is about evaluation and moving us to be more client-centric in everything that we do. Also, June eleventh, Janet, is our Spread Your Wing biannual gala. Um, And so we're excited about that. It's going to be at the McLemire down on the U's campus. I wanted to give that plug um, as well. I hear there's going to be a great prayer before dinner. Yeah. (laughs) There's uh, we, we've invited a certain local pastor <laughs> to come and bless bless the food. If you know anybody, let us know. <laughs> Fair
0: enough. Well, to follow up from the first question, how was your acclamation to Minnesota, ac- acclamation to Minnesota? And kind of to follow up to that previous question, how are you seeing in your year, year and a half now with interfaith outreach the needs changing in Plymouth? You know, is it inflation that's a problem now, or housing, or jobs, or whatever else? What are, how are things shifting, and how are you responding?
1: Yeah, so um, I've become a Minnesotan at this point. It's been almost ten years, um, and I think I've um, navigated the what, the, the what, what. <laughs> the wet, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the weather, um, <laughs> I still hadn't figured that out. When you do, let me know. Um, but no, it's been it's been a good transition for me, um, and it's been um, Minnesota's been very good to me and my family, and very very grateful to be here. And then the second question about what some of the emergent needs that we're seeing. You know, housing can, continues to be a challenge, you know, in the Western suburb. Not, it's all over. It's not even in, in the Western suburbs. Just affordable housing continues to be an issue. We also now, when COVID first hit, there was a lot of government subsidies that were coming in and helping people with their rent and rent assists. Well, that's gone away. But there's still people with back rents. And we're seeing people come in with really, really, really high back rents and um, trying to help deal with that. We also are seeing an influx in our food shelf because now with inflation in the cost of gas and eggs and milk and bread, they know that they can come and we can support them in our food shelf. And then they take those dollars that they used to use for groceries now to help pay rent and utilities. And so we are seeing an increase in that way as well. Um, Mental health continues to be a challenge um, for families and individuals in our community. And so, those are kind of some of the emerging needs that we're seeing and sensing within, within our community. Um,
0: another online question, Kevin. Um, I have to ask is there a story behind the ballet thing? <laughs> <laughs>
1: So it was mandatory that we had a, a time where you had to take it as part of um, being on the football team in college <laughs> to be more balanced and nimble, I guess. Um, but needless to say, I was not very good at ballet. <laughs> I don't believe that. I don't
0: believe that. Um, here's another one. Um, Slightly longer, people talk a lot about the trauma we've experienced as a whole nation slash world over the last couple of years. How do we name that and heal from it? For those who have experienced trauma in the way that you have, how do you heal from that? And how can others and communities support that healing?
1: Yeah, that's a big question. And um, <clears throat> I, I don't have the answer. Um, I can only talk from my own experience and what we've seen. I think understanding the impacts of trauma and how it shows up for people. And I think one of the ways to heal, and again, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a mental health professional. But just being kind of in and around the work, I think the key is, one, allowing for a safe place for people to talk about and process those traumas. And then secondly, is having processes and experiences where people are not re-traumatized as a result. And a lot of times in the industry, they call that trauma-informed ways of being and doing. And that's something that Interfaith, you know, we're starting to really look at and work on, is what are our processes when people come to us who have been traumatized or who's, who's in a state of, of fight or flight? you know. How can our processes help not re-traumatize them, but help support them in our process and trying to get to some level of healing? I'm also a huge advocate of um, counseling, mental health services. I think that's you know support groups, all of it. We need all of it.
0: All right. If there's, I'm, I'm going to ask you one final question, if no one else is going to ask anything else, which is um, you. I mentioned in my introduction that most of our speakers in this series, despite the fact that it's faith-based, have not been pastors or theologians. Most have actually been leaders in the nonprofit or the business world or other areas of, of industry. Um, Kevin, actually, I don't know if you talked about this, went to seminary. Yep. Um, and I guess my question for you would be, is there one, are, one or two lessons you learned from seminary, seminary that inform what you
1: do in your current role? Did y'all hear that question? Because it sounds like a question from another seminarian. <laughs> <laughs> so I think one of the first things is, um, i never forget when I got to the end of my um, master's there. It dawned on me that I actually knew more going into seminary than I did leaving. Seriously. And here's what I learned as part of that process was I realized that there was a lot that I did not know. But seminary gave me the tools and resources to be able to find the answers from a research standpoint, from a theory standpoint. And so it was very helpful in that. Of, I knew a lot of church, but the academic side was a different story. Um, so I did, you know, figure out how to how to get through seminary, but more importantly, how to approach the unknown when it comes to faith. Um, The other thing I think I I learned and I took away from that experience, um, it's important work. And for the people who are called or have an interest in going down that path, I'm always supportive because we um, we need it. So thank you to those of you who Are in the ministry, whether you're ordained or not, but um, whether you just minister on your job or a a person of consistent faith, um, thank you, because we we need it. All right.
0: Just hold your applause for a second. Um, So again, thank all of you for being here tonight. I know it was a gorgeous day out. Despite being in Minnesota, (laughs) we finally are seeing the sun again. So, thanks for coming out. Uh, To those of you who joined us online, thank you for being with us. I hope we'll see you in October. Kevin, I want to say thank you to you, my friend. Uh, We're so grateful that you spent an evening with us. Keep up the good work at Interfaith. And we have a small gift for you a little plaque that says, with thanks to Kevin Ward for bringing faith to life. We're so grateful of you. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you.